0: Or at WhatWasThatLike.com.
1: Hey guys, I don't know if you heard, but we're going to be at Crime Con this week. So we've been kind of busy getting ready and did not have much time to prepare a new episode for you. CrimeCon is in Austin this year, so we thought we'd replay our episode on the Austin Axe Murderer, which originally aired as our Christmas episode. So Merry Christmas in June, Fruities. Some people call this case America's Jack the Ripper. It's pretty interesting, and we hope you enjoy it.
2: Everybody, and welcome to Fruit Loops episode 106. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about the true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cis white dudes. What? Uh-uh. uh No, 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 no. Uh-uh. I know you are, but what am I? Oh, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a serial killer, but there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the media and entertainment
1: commonly leave out because the news is racist, allegedly. Also, our website
2: is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website, plus check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become
1: a Fruit Loops patron. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Well, Merry Christmas, y'all! Hey! Yeah! We have a present for you today. A
2: mystery. I
1: am so <laughs> sorry about my weak-ass air horn. We don't usually cover unsolved cases, but this is our gift to you on this holiday. Today, we're talking about the Austin Axe murderer, an American, presumably male, identifying individual who was never captured or identified, but who murdered eight people between December 30th, 1984 and December 24th, 1985. Ooh, we now.
2: When I was researching this case, I told you I was outside at night and I was like scared. Like I, this is a (laughs) like this is a scary story. Yeah, pretty
1: creepy. Yeah, but
2: but but before we get into the scary stuff, how you doing?
1: I'm good. Um, as far as I know, right now this is uh, about a week before Christmas. I'll be going to see my daughter and her family at Christmas, and they just had COVID, so. I should be safe. They should be safe, except for the flight, but I'm going to be wearing an N ninety five mask with a another mask on top of it. Hey. <laughs> that's how you do it. <laughs> Anyway, I'm excited to go see them. And uh, we aren't planning on going anywhere or seeing anyone, but I'm just going to see them. So it's cool.
2: There you go. So you're double bagging. (laughs) You're double (laughs) bagging the situation. I like it. I am. I like it. And I think that is wonderful that you're getting the opportunity to go see your family. And that is just really, really wonderful. And um, yeah, prayers, thoughts and prayers. Everybody stay safe and you guys have a good time. Uh, It's gonna look a lot like Christmas mess because isn't it freezing cold and snowing there
1: yeah yeah it okay is. Enjoy yourself.
2: Me- meanwhile here in phoenix we're like in flip-flops checking the mail like what's up ted uh yeah you have fun over there freezing your buns off uh but uh i am good um Old Whitey will be having cervical spine surgery, and we are also getting ready for Christmas. Um, Wow. Yes, speaking of Christmas, my kids mailed their lists to Santa, (laughs) and they were asking for shit like iPhone 12 and 11. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) I don't know how much money Santa has, but I don't know if he's got that kind of bag, like... I might have to like tell them the, the truth here soon. Um <laughs> they get my son keeps saying like, "Oh man, when I get my iPhone 12." And I'm like looking at him like, "You are going to be so disappointed." And uh then my daughter goes, "You know what? I think that if Santa doesn't get me what I wanted, it's probably cuz he's racist." Like not cuz she's on the naughty list or anything like that, like. And again, I'm just looking at these little like offspring <laughs> Like, kind of proud and speechless all at the same time. (laughs) So, (laughs) so yeah. Woo! But uh, that's enough of that. Now, let's get into some listener hello,
1: hello, angels.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is in the bag, Beth?
1: Well, we got a lovely note from Miranda who said, when I found out I had some fellow lovely Phoenix ladies killing it, no pun intended. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> in the true crime podcast game, I had to support. Love your show. Keep it up. Hey, hip
2: hop air horns. Thank you, Miranda.
1: Yeah, Ooh, thank wrong button.
2: Sorry. <laughs> hip hop air horns. I'm sorry, Miranda. <laughs> Ooh, please
1: forgive me. Uh, <laughs> what else is in there? Well, one of our new patrons, Chelsea, sent us some love and a message. They said, hi, I found your show from the Murder Squad episode. I subscribed about five minutes in because I knew you were who I needed to listen to about murder.
2: Hey, <laughs> yeah,
1: <You're... laughs> I just wanted to let you know, I wish I could give more to the pod, but I am a forever student. First year met in Canada. Wow. Congrats. Oh, yeah. Doing
2: the Lord's work.
1: And thank you for saving everybody's life. Yeah. In the future. <laughs> Uh, yeah, in the future. <laughs> or maybe now, who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> P.S. Have you ever looked into the first Prime Minister of Canada? John A. MacDonald was responsible for the starvation and massacre of the First Nations people on the land I now live on. Mm. Most notably, the illegal hanging of Metris leader Louis Riel at the site where we now train RMCP. That's gross.
2: Oh, my God. Yes. Um go yeah. I was just gonna say shout out to her for knowing um the history of the land that she occupies yeah. and counting it out. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah.
1: My family immigrated from South Africa, so I'm slowly working on learning the history of this land, though you would also be interested in learning more about the country everyone thinks is so kind and polite.
2: <laughs> no, we know, we know what time it is. We know the vibes. We know what's up over there in Canada.
1: <laughs> if you're interested, look at the Commons podcast episode 2, and the whole season honestly. I apologize for the long rambling message. I feel like I already know you guys from listening to the pod. Aww. Stay safe and keep wearing a mask thank you chelsea thank you
2: so much chelsea yeah air horns to you sis and uh yeah i just think all of that like that whole message was just like a comprehensive um woke looking for understanding snack um yeah and mm, satisfying (laughs) It's uh, delicious. It's delicious. Uh, now we're going to, uh, sh- we've got some new patrons, uh, Spencer T and Chelsea L and uh, Podbean patron Miranda T, uh, who again, as we mentioned, is uh, in our Phoenix Pod fam for showing us some love. So yeah. here are your tunes. Hope you don't hate them. <laughs> <laughs> Spencer, baby, just slip a murder under the tree for me. Been an awful good pod, Spencer baby. So hurry down the chimney tonight. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> All right. Next. Just hear those Chelsea's ring a ting, ting ting-a-ling, too. Come on, it's lovely weather for a murder together with you. Ligature, 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 let's go. Let's play in the snow. If that was too much, I am so sorry. Sometimes I get going with these tunes and I just can't stop. Uh, there is, <laughs> wait, there's more. Maybe we should do an album. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's on my 20, 2021 vision board to, to like, because I know other ugh, other podcasts who are kind of musically inclined do release just the MP3s. So I have to figure out how to isolate the audio that we have and put um, right. it out as like extra content for people to access. Yeah. Um, so I uh, it is on my vision board to learn. Uh <laughs> but I have one <laughs> I have one more tune. Uh <clears throat> we just want you for our own more than you could ever know. Make true crime come true. All we want, Miranda is you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> So, Good one. Thank you. Took me a while to warm up to it and knock it out, uh, kind of. Uh, also, uh, we got some more coffee, to coffee donations. Thank you all so much for having a cup of, cup of joe with us. given us the yeah. coffee love. So Marietta, nobody does it better. And thank you. And to our Ivory King, Paul T, thank you all yeah. so much. And every single one of you deserves the hip-hop air horns. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Let me double it up because... <laughs>
1: I just needed a breath. (laughs) Beth, remind us, who is our subject today? As we mentioned, this is an unsolved case, which is not something we usually do, but we thought it would be fun for Christmas to do something a little different. Today, we are covering the case of the Austin Axe murder, which some people call America's Jack the Ripper.
2: Ooh, uh-oh! Uh, I don't have any scary sound effects, but let's just hop into the stats, and you'll you'll see, you guys. This really creeps me out. Okay, here we go. Stats time, brah. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a
0: rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of
2: crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one, the one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story a production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can find Carol Costello
0: Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com. Something is creeping Don't follow it down
2: All right. Today's subject, name unknown. He or she, we believe it's a he, had uh, eight known victims. Uh, Molly Smith was 25. Walter Spencer was attacked, but not murdered, just seriously wounded. Clara Strand and Christine Martinson were two Swedish servant girls uh, who were seriously wounded. Eliza Shelley... Uh, Irene Cross. I don't have more information about them. I apologize. Clara Dick uh, was someone who was seriously wounded. Mary Ramey, 11 years old, uh, was murdered and her mother, Rebecca Ramey, was seriously wounded. Uh, Gracie Vance and her boyfriend, Orange Washington, were both murdered. Susan Hancock, was a woman on who was murdered on Christmas Eve and Eula Phillips was also murdered on Christmas Eve. And her husband, James Phil- Phillips was seriously wounded. Um, did you want to divide this up or you want me to huh? keep going?
1: Oh no, uh, you can keep going. Oh, okay. I just threw these in there for you to read. Oh, plus
2: you're again, it's like <laughs> if if life was a video game and you got gold coins or points and the ching, final, ching, ching, yeah ching. the final level was heaven i just everything you do i'm i just hear like ching she's on ching, to the next ching. level who she is close to heaven <laughs> <laughs> uh let's see. Okay. Uh, mo- uh moving along, the Austin Axe murderer, aka the Axe Man of Austin, and aka the servant girl Annihilator. This aka originated from the Reiner O. Henry, the guy who wrote The Gift of Magi, a Christmas story in which a wife sells her hair to buy her husband a Christmas present. A platinum watch chain for his prized pocket watch. But as it turns out, the husband sold his pocket watch to buy his wife a present ornamental combs for her hair it's not sad uh <laughs> oh henry actually lived in austin under his real name william Sidney porter in 1885 he wrote to a friend that the town is fearfully dull except for the frequent raids of the servant girl annihilators who make things lively in the dead of night uh <laughs> Here's something I found out while researching this case. O. Henry was not only a writer, but he was also a bank teller in Austin who spent more than three years in a federal penitentiary for embezzlement. Uh he started writing while he was in prison. The more you know. Boom,
1: boom. Wow. Boom. boom,
2: boom that thing that Um by, yeah. the, by the way, uh speaking of dead of night. And part of my research in this case was listening to, um, you know, some podcasts about it. And 99% Invisible did an episode about this case and talked about how um, there were no streetlights at the time and how easy it was. For people to just things to happen in the dead of Flip night. Around yeah. In the dark. Yeah. For I'm us to consider now. Anyway, eight people were killed six black people and two white people, all attacked in the middle of the night, several of them with an axe. The Annihilator's victims were mostly young black women who worked as domestic servants. They were attacked indoors while asleep in their beds, but five of them were dragged outside. The Annihilator also raped and mutilated his victims, and he would also attack anyone who was present. During the murders, including the victims, friends, boyfriends and husbands. The murders took place over a year from December 1884 to December 1885. And they just stopped. Poof. Done. And the perpetrator was never caught. So now we're going to yeah. dive into the setting. Take us there, Beth.
1: Austin, Texas is located along the north bank of the Colorado River. Evidence of habitation in the Balcones Escarpment region of Texas, a fault line that runs from Dallas down through Austin and into San Antonio, can be traced to at least 11,000 years ago. Two of the oldest paleolithic archaeological sites in Texas, the Levi Rock Shelter and the Smith Rock Shelter, are located southwest and southeast of present-day Austin, respectively.
2: For hundreds of years, nomadic tribes of Tonkawas, Comanches, Lepan, Apaches, and others camped, fished, and hunted along the creeks nearby. In the late 1700s, the Spanish set up temporary missions in the area. You know where this is going. People of African descent were part of the population that settled in Texas in the 17th and 18th centuries. This population included free and enslaved Black and mixed-race people, as interracial marriage was legal and very common.
1: The enslaved the population was afforded some rights under Spanish rule, including the right to purchase freedom, protest against abuse, or obtain new masters if they were being treated unfairly. Though African people occupied the lower end of the costas, a racial categorization system of Spanish Texas, some African and mixed-race people were able to ascend the classification system by gaining wealth and prestige through labor.
2: Following Mexican independence in 1821, the Mexican government adopted policies to gradually outlaw enslavement in the newly established country, but Anglo settlers actively worked to ensure slavery was preserved in Texas.
1: A number of enslaved African Americans arrived with Stephen F. Austin and his Anglo settlers in 1824. By the end of 1825, there were around 443 slaves in the colony, almost a quarter of its population. By the time that clashes with the Mexican government led to the Texas Revolution in 1835, more than 5,000 enslaved people lived in Texas.
2: Wow. Uh, The Texas Constitution of 1836 gave Gave more protection to slaveholders while further controlling the lives of enslaved people through new slave codes. The Texas legislature passed increasingly restrictive laws governing the lives of free Blacks, including a law banishing all free Black people from the Republic
1: of Texas. Texas's enslaved population grew rapidly. While there were 30,000 enslaved people in Texas in 1845, the census lists 58,161 enslaved African Americans in 18. The number had increased to 182,566 by 1860.
2: Uh, That is quite a jump. That is a
1: lot. And uh,
2: welcome to Culture Corner. Uh, At some point in the mid-18-something, 1800-something, the transatlantic slave trade ended. England was like, this is dumb. We don't need this anymore. Spain was like we're moving on. And uh the United States was like, but we still need Af- we still need Africans. So they started breeding black people. Um oh, and wow. there, and at one point in our nation's history before slavery was abolished, Virginia's like number 1 export was enslaved people. Um, oh my god. And so that is I think the um growth of the population had to do with um that was by breeding. design. Yeah, by breeding. So Anyway, when the first permanent Anglo settlers arrived in the Austin area, they named the village Waterloo. In 1839, the capital of the New Republic of Texas was moved from Houston to Waterloo. A new city was then built and named after Stephen F. Austin, the father of Texas, Judge Edwin Waller, who was later to become the city's first mayor, surveyed the site and laid out a street plan that remains largely intact today.
1: Waller surveyed a grid plan on a single square mile plot with 14 blocks running in both directions. One Grand Avenue, which Lamar named Congress, cut through the center of town from Capitol Square down to the Colorado River.
2: In October 1839, the entire government of the Republic arrived from Houston in ox carts. By the next January, the town population was about 856 people. At this time, Austin was, in the words of writer Skip Hollinsworth, a rustic cow town with cattle and hogs running wild in the streets.
1: (laughs) The new town plan included a hilltop site for a Capitol building looking down towards the Colorado River from the head of Congress Avenue. The Avenue, which is what they called it, and Pecan Street, now 6th Street, have remained Austin's principal business streets ever since.
2: By the way, have you ever been to Austin?
1: I have not. Oh, it's a neat little city. I hear it's nice. Yeah,
2: it is nice. Um, on February 23rd, 1861, Texans voted to secede from the Union and join the Confederate States of America. Because Texas remained relatively unscathed by fighting during the war, life for enslaved African Americans continued in much the same way as it had before the
1: fighting. On June 19th, 1865, at the end of the Civil War and over two years after President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, General Gordon Granger landed in Galveston and declared that enslavement had ended. However, many black people in Texas remained enslaved for months and in many parts of Texas for years when their owners refused to release them. Many newly emancipated people celebrated their independence at the holiday subsequently known as Juneteenth. And it's a holiday that black American people celebrate to this day.
2: Hell yeah. One of the best holidays of the year. Juneteenth. (laughs) Get my red drink. Get all the fixins, woo! Wait, yeah, uh, but unfortunately, Juneteenth this year was virtual. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe next year. Yeah, uh, after the Civil War, millions of millions were freed from slavery. They were without homes or steady work. Their families had been torn apart by the domestic slave trade. White Southerners saw this as Black vagrancy and believed it to be a sudden and dangerous problem. Uh, They also saw a sudden drop in their labor force and their profits, particularly in cotton. And they were freaking out. Uh, Freed Black people immediately were able to work less because we're not slaves anymore. (laughs) Thank God. Uh, And so they... T- uh took it upon themselves to work less uh because they had that right. They, they didn't they didn't have to work, all the, have to work all the goddamn time, yeah, sun up to sundown. Get out of here with that shit. They reduced their Saturday work hours, and many black women, how dare they, were now able to spend more time with their own children instead of for caring for and breastfeeding, you know, their master's white kids.
1: Rude. Mm-hmm. The uppity. <laughs> so uppity. The audacity, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Black codes were instated by an all-white state constitutional congress in 1866 to regulate the behavior and movement of black people in white society which severely limited black people's rights these black codes included labor vagrancy and apprenticeships laws that were meant to mimic the conditions of enslavement the laws were said to be applicable regardless of race but in actuality they only applied to black people
2: Mm. Kind of sounds. Yeah. Where have I heard that before? Oh, 2020. That's where I heard it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Also, uh, I was looking for like a because these laws are really like ridiculous i'll get into it in this here we go black people caught violating any of the ridiculous laws would be rounded up by authorities and placed in contract work forced apprenticeships or convict leasing situations white texans reacting to the end of the civil war increased violence and attacks against african americans and these these um black codes or these black laws Um, Every state had different ones. I think most of them modeled theirs off of South Carolina's, which were the most harsh. Uh, But there's so many of them. And they're so stupid. Uh, Yeah, I was just looking for one like really silly one. And I couldn't find one. But if any of you guys are listening, come across like just a a ridiculous like something stupid, like you can't cross the street as at the same time as a white lady or you're going to like it's just dumb stuff like that. Uh, Anyway.
1: The Ku Klux Klan was present in Texas by 1868. Nine years later, in 1877, Reconstruction failed because radical Republican legislation ultimately failed to protect former slaves from white persecution and failed to implement fundamental changes to the social fabric of the South.
2: In addition, white Texans utilized violence, intimidation, and legal means to limit black suffrage and passed a poll tax in 1902 to restrict the political participation of poor people. Of all races. There was also the white primary,
1: which restricted voting in primary elections to white Texans only. Ugh, ridiculous. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Newly freed African-Americans, most of whom had few resources with which to start their new lives, found themselves increasingly limited by the legacies of enslavement. Many were forced to sign sharecropping contracts with their former owners, while others were incarcerated at rapid rates. Despite these difficulties, African-Americans began constructing new forms of family and kinship ties while making gains in literacy and education.
2: Huh? Staying alive. Staying alive. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I just re- I saw I I heard those words come out of your mouth, and I and I was like, you know, like f- almost glory tear, but sm- but smiling because yeah, look, look, look at look at us, yeah. you know, continuing yep. to you know just one foot in front of the other, keep it going. Um, in spite of everything in eight, the 1870s brought dramatic changes to Austin in the downtown area, the wooden wagon yards and saloons of the 1850s and 60s began to be replaced by more solid masonry structures. And on December 25th, 1871, Austin became the westernmost railroad terminus in Texas and the only railroad town for many miles. This transformed Austin into a trading center. Construction boomed and the population more than doubled in five years to... 10,363.
1: By 1875, there were 757 inhabitants from Germany, 297 from Mexico, 215 from Ireland, and 138 from Sweden. For the first time, a Mexican-American community took root in Austin, in a neighborhood near the mouth of Shoal Creek. Accompanying these dramatic changes were civic improvements, among them gas street lamps in 1874. The first street Streetcar line in 1875, and the first elevated bridge across the Colorado River about 1876. There were restaurants, and opera house, and ice cream parlor, hotels, and telephone lines.
2: Doesn't that sound neat? Like just like, it does,
1: like, how exciting that would be! Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to personally go back there, but it sounds nice. Uh, yeah. Again, black people don't fucks with time travel. Like when you <laughs> ask a black person, "Like, hey, what deck What don't you wish you could be born in a different decade?" No black person will answer. Yes, they will always say, "I am right happy. I'm fine right here, and looking forward to tomorrow or like ten years from now." But <laughs> it, back in the eighteen 18- whatever. <laughs> Missed with yeah, no, that. You. No, thank you. But it does sound <laughs> nice on paper. Anyway, Um, By the 1880s, Austin was becoming an actual city, not just a cow town. On September 6th, 1881, Austin was chosen from the site of the new University of Texas. Efforts to place the university in Austin did face some opposition, however. Parents were warned that sending their sons to school so close to lawmakers would be a terrible influence on their morals. Interesting. (laughs) That's really interesting.
1: Isn't that so they're afraid of the elites? Politicians, I think.
2: (laughs) okay oh interesting
1: that's that's how i took it
2: oh okay like it just sounds like i don't want you going to school with those coastal elites except they're in tech they're in texas
1: (laughs) yeah Yeah, i don't know yeah okay (laughs) But in 1882, construction began and the university held classes for the first time in 1883. St. Edwards College, which catered to Irish Catholic immigrants, was also built in Austin, as was the Tulletson Collegiate and Normal Institute for black students. Some called the city the, quote, Athens of the West, unquote. That sounds really nice. However, laws requiring segregation of railroad
2: cars, waiting rooms, restrooms, restaurants, entertainment establishments, and residential neighborhoods restricted African-American mobility and advancement during the late 19th and early 20th centuries.
1: The Ku Klux Klan continued to enact violence and terror on Texas African-Americans, and lynching became an increasingly prevalent form of racial intimidation. Between 1885 and 1942, there were four 468 documented victims of lynching in texas the vast majority of whom were african-american
2: yeah and i think key word there is documented documented Um, yeah because yeah i suspect that number is a lot higher probably more Mm -hmm. yeah there were black communities in austin mason town wheatsville and clarksville guy town located just west of congress avenue was Austin's Red Light District, which blossomed during the last quarter of the 19th century. The entire area was eight square blocks. Their clients were city council members, legislators, and businessmen who tacitly supported business in Guytown Town through their continued patronage. This area was mixed
1: race. Saloons and beer halls were everywhere, plus there was cocaine and opium.
2: Ooh, Wee. hello. Wee. <laughs> oh, man. oh man, after the core. here we go.
1: <laughs> People complained about it, but the city council turned a blind eye. When one man reported that on a single night he can- had counted over 100 University of Texas students in Guy Town, the city council asked, "What's your point?" <laughs>
2: Uh, yeah, I'm like, what? Yeah, what is the problem?
1: <laughs> Guy Town was so popular with politicians that the businesses known as, quote, female boarding houses had to hire new, quote unquote, boarders Whoa. whenever the legislature was in session. <laughs> wow and sex workers were referred to as actresses. Oh, that's <laughs> that's a- another thing that when I was doing research and I read this, it was, you know, back then actresses had really bad reputations. No, and really? Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, they may as well have been sex workers. And, and I wonder if this is why.
2: Wow, that is so interesting. Look yeah. at that. Look at this, Beth. <laughs> wow, that's what a fascinating fact. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. Uh, well, in 1884, Austin's economy was booming and the population was at about 23,000. Yet to the rest of the country, Austin was still considered something of a backwater.
0: American Vigilante. Now. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads...
1: So now we're going to dive into the timeline. Hit it, Beth. On December 30th, 1884, three years before the Jack the Ripper murders, a black cook named Molly Smith was attacked in her bed. Molly, 25, was born in Virginia in 1857, but was in Texas by the early 1870s. She lived in a small outbuilding behind the home of her employer, William Hall, with her boyfriend, Walter Spencer.
2: Sometime after midnight on the morning of December 31st, William Hall was awakened by Spencer, who was bleeding profusely from several wounds to the head. He explained to Hall that he had been attacked while he slept. He had been knocked unconscious and Smith had apparently been taken by the attacker because he could not find her.
1: Hall went to the outbuilding where Molly lived and found signs of a struggle and a blood-covered axe. He then followed a trail of blood into the backyard where he found Molly Smith lying in the snow. She had died from injuries inflicted by the axe, and she had a gaping hole in her head.
2: Sounds horrific. So that was December 30th. Now we're on to the night of March 19th, 1884. Clara Strand and Christine Martinson, two Swedish servant girls that shared living quarters in the same upscale part of town, were seriously wounded when they were shot while walking home. Despite serious wounds, Christine and Clara Strand lived to tell about it, though neither of them had very much to say and could not describe their assailant.
1: We should say that a lot of articles do not include Clara and Christine's attack as part of the crimes attributed to the axe murderer because they were, one, white, two, they were shot at while walking rather than attacked with an axe in their home. So it was a completely different MO. Yeah, it
2: is, but it certainly is a good way to throw... um, The authorities off now I'll get to my theories at the end, but uh, black people were not allowed to have weapons like guns. Oh, wow yeah that i didn't think so, about that, but that yeah so that would have just eliminated any black person um right but uh, this crime captured the full attention of the authorities and the press because the victims were young pretty and white newspapers and frightened readers demanded that the police do something the city marshal grooms lee described in some articles as lazy, and corrupt. Surprise, surprise. Made a show of a modest increase in foot patrols, but did little else to deter or apprehend the perpetrator. He did take credit when the attacks quote unquote stopped, but as it turned out, it was just a lull in a killing spree.
1: Eliza Shelley, 28, was a cook for the family of Dr. Lucien B. Johnson and lived in a cabin located at the back of the home. She lived there with her three children, but her husband, William, had been incarcerated earlier in the year for stealing a horse. Eliza was described as, quote, a faithful wife, mother and employee, unquote.
2: I also wanted to point out that we are not that far away from the time period of enslavement in america um yeah. and reconstruction is over because of terrorism um yeah. and so the only jobs available for women especially um were as domestic servants so yeah uh just wanted it out uh, on May 8th, 1885, Eliza was discovered by her young children on the floor of the cabin with a gaping axe wound to her right temple. There was also a hole that had been punctured into her skull in between her eyes and another deep round hole above her ear. It was speculated that the killer had stabbed her with an iron bar or with something like a screwdriver. There were also several nice wounds, knife wounds, nice wounds. Not nice, nice wounds. Not nice wounds. There were <laughs> not, some no,
1: nice no, wounds. Uh, no, no,
2: don't do it, Wendy. Uh, <laughs> there were also some sev- s- several knife wounds up and down her body.
1: The killer had broken open a couple of trunks and scattered their contents around the room. Eliza's bloody body had been wrapped in a blanket from the bed and she had been placed on a quilt taken from one of the trunks. From the way that her body was posed and her nightgown was pulled up, the police thought it was likely that she had been sexually assaulted. Unlike Molly Smith, Eliza had not been taken outside, nor was the murder weapon left behind.
2: Uh, The children were I got to point something out too. I feel like I might be spitting out facts and might be getting my timeline confused, (laughs) like the black people not being able to own weapons. I'm not 100 percent sure if that was the case in Austin, Texas, but I know that it's it was one of the black codes. So if we're talking about the same time period, my assumption is it applied in this time, in this place, but don't back check me on it. Uh, (laughs) The children were too traumatized to give any useful evidence, but footprints of bare feet were found by the cabin. Dr. Johnson was distraught and described Eliza as an excellent woman who they treated as a lesser member of the family. Is that a compliment? And that he didn't know why anyone would want to kill her, particularly in this gruesome manner.
1: Two weeks later, on May 23rd, a third black servant, Irene Cross, who was 33, was attacked. Irene was born in Mississippi. By 1870, Irene and her husband, Haywood, were living in Austin along with their nine-year-old son. By 1880, Irene was widowed. Hmm. In 1884, Irene lived on Chestnut Street, now 18th Street, with her grown son, Washington, and an eight-year-old nephew, Douglas Brown.
2: Irene was found in the backyard of her employer's house, after her employer Robert Wireman heard screaming and ran outside, Irene's right arm had been almost severed in half, and a long horizontal gash extended
1: across her forehead as if someone had tried to scalp her. She was still alive but could not speak. Wireman had her carried inside to a spare bedroom in his house, something that white people thought at the time as an amazing act of generosity.
2: Mm-mm. Mm. Oh, my God. <laughs>
1: oh, my God. Irene hung on until May 25th when she finally died.
2: So as long as... <laughs> I mean, what's the opposite? Like, hanging up, hanging her up for a tree and letting all the blood drain from her body? Like,
1: <laughs> at least he didn't do that. Well, I guess because he took her into his house rather than, you know, putting her in her house, um, I guess. I don't know. but
2: Okay. Uh, all right. I'm... Hmm. All right. Now, here's another thing I need to say about people always say, like, have you ever heard a, like a white person say, like, well, if I was alive back then, I would have said something or I would have done something. Right. Right. Um. And we all want to be on the right side of history. But yeah. Um, I think the right and the wrong is really clear in this, and I, I think it it was really gen- it was really generous of her employer to to like let her in the house. But for the mindset of the people to be like, wow, that is on, wow, that is amazing. Wow, give that guy yeah. all of the hip hop air horns. I'm not hitting that button. Don't 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 expect it. Don't hold your breath. I'm just saying. Uh, <laughs> right, there's a right, and then there's a wrong, and there's a lot of stuff in between. And right. I think it was generous of him, and I. I think it's weird that people thought that was weird. Anyway, the night <laughs> Irene was attacked, Washington was not home since he worked nights, but Douglas was. He was one of the few people to see the killer whom he described as a big, chunky Negro man, barefooted and with his pants rolled up. The killer had covered him with a blanket and told him to be quiet. Douglas had no recollection of the murder and it is speculated that the killer sedated him with chloroform stolen from a dentist.
1: The killer struck again in August of 1885 when Clara Dick was seriously wounded, but survived the attack. Unfortunately, we don't know much about Clara or this attack, and it's not always included in the stories about this case.
2: Yeah, I thought that was interesting when I was when when because I did my own research to Beth, even though Beth did. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Probably like 90% of it. Anyway. So when I was doing my research, there were some names on the, like the list that we had already included in our doc and that, w- that were included or not included in other sources and I'm different, I like, different yeah. sources. I like, yeah. Huh, okay. Well, Here we go. Police did not appear to believe that this was the work of one person. Serial murder was not understood at the time. I don't think anybody had even heard of it. After each crime, they arrested boyfriends, husbands, or known acquaintances. Reporting at the time used words like demons, monsters, and fiends, portraying that it was not the work of one person but of multiple persons. And I gotta say... Those uh, nouns um, are just so sinister that I wonder if the media, my impression was the media was implying that it was a person of color.
1: Right. Yeah, could be.
2: Could just be my interpretation. Sorry. Could be. Yeah. I don't know. I'm sensitive.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The next victim was 11 year old Mary Ramey. Mary never knew her father, Jacob Ramey, who had died several months before she was born. Her grandmother, Harriet Carrington, and an uncle, Edward H. Carrington, owned the Carrington grocery store on East Pecan Street, now 6th Street, opened in 1872, which was one of the first Black owned businesses in Austin.
2: Ooh, that deserves a hip hop air horn. In the meantime, Beth, say Pecan again.
1: Sorry, pecan.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, pecan. Was that pecan? Pecan. I would say pecan, but you know, and to, to each to each his own. I'm sure everybody's got their own little, you know. Pecan. <laughs> say
1: it again. You said pecan. I just pecan I pecan. I East just pecan. pecan pecan pecan.
2: Say pecan. Hi.
1: <laughs> Pecan pie. Pecan pie. Oh, pecan, pecan, that's it. Pecan you're, pie. You're off the island. I'm voting you off. Pecan pie. Pecan pie. How do you how do you say it? Pecan. Pecan. Pecan pie. It's just so funny.
2: I love the little things, the little things you say. I just want to I just want to put you in things. like a little <laughs> remember when Wonka when Mike TV got shrunk. Uh, yeah, like that i She put him in the put him in first that's what I want to do sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> say it sometimes. You you <laughs> no, I don't know how to say it. I don't know how you said it before. Rewind the tape. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know. Right. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so okay, so <laughs> Pecan Street. Got it. Uh and one of the first Black owned businesses in Austin which again deserves a hip hop air horn. I'll do it one more time just in case. Now, by the mid-1880s, Mary's mother, Rebecca Ramey, found employment working as a domestic servant at the residence of livery owner Valentine O. Weed on East Cedar Street, now 4th Street. And she and Mary
1: lived on the property. On August 31st, Valentine Weed was awoken at about 4.30 or 5 in the morning to a strange sound. He went outside to the wash house, opened the door, and found Mary Ramey lying there. (sighs) Ooh, um...
2: Now, if we were like a super high production show, we would have scary music there, but you're not getting it. <laughs> uh, her mother, Rebecca Ramey, had been knocked unconscious while she slept and Mary had been dragged to the backyard wash house. She'd been raped and a spike of some kind had been driven into her ear,
1: piercing mm her brain. Police again found bare footprints. After the death of her daughter, Rebecca Ramey moved to the East Austin neighborhood of Rosewood, where she lived for the rest of her life with her older daughter, Minnie, and her son-in-law, Lee Green. An 1888 newspaper article stated that Rebecca had, quote, never recovered from the shock and the wounds of that terrible night of blood, unquote not surprising
2: in the least bit.
1: Yeah. Uh yeah. at,
2: at this point people in Austin began freaking the fuck out. Uh some <laughs> editorials advised vigilance committees basically saying that if the police weren't going to protect them, they needed to protect
1: themselves. In 1885 Austin had a 12-man police force. Woo! Come again? <laughs> <laughs> and they had little experience with detective investigation or modern police work. Two of the officers were black to police the black communities, but they were not allowed to interrogate or arrest white people.
2: Mm. Uh, At the time, the white community thought the murders were the work of black gangs. Some people thought that because many of the women were living with their boyfriends out of wedlock, that they were targeted for their sinful way of life. The black community thought that it was the work of demons or some other unholy
1: being. The police response was predictably to round up a bunch of black men and jail them. Because bare footprints were often found around the bodies of the victims, some black men were arrested on the suspicion of murder simply because they were not wearing shoes.
2: Um, yeah. And uh, I'm assuming um, my understanding from uh, the like timeline, it's summertime, right? Like August?
1: Let's see. When was the last murder? Like it's uh, hot, right? It's
2: Austin. Yep,
1: August. So yeah, I mean, and I'm I'm sure shoes were also a luxury, but they're very expensive back then. Yeah, you wouldn't be wearing shoes in the summer uh, if you didn't have to, right? Am I right? Up
2: high. Uh, yeah. So uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, anyway, the city also called in some outside detectives who used policing techniques from the old South. This already sounds like a horror movie gone wrong. Some of the jailed men were beaten severely in order to get a confession, and some of them were threatened with lynching. None of the men confessed. Yeah. The ways of the Old South. I talked about this last episode. All they had to do was just treat people with respect. Be nice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. At the same time, bands of armed men began roaming the streets after dark, taking their fear and frustration out on anyone who crossed their path. More often than not, the people who crossed their path were black men and boys. Many of these men and boys locked themselves in their homes and would not venture out even for work. I mean,
2: do you want to stay alive or do you want to get paid? Yeah. I don't, you know.
1: understandable.
2: Then came the murders of Gracie Vance, 20, and her boyfriend, Orange Washington, 25. Orange Washington was Employed by an Austin builder, the couple lived in a small cabin on the property of William Dunham, Gracie Vance's employer. She was a domestic servant.
1: On September 28th, 1885, just before 1 a.m., the killer slipped into the cabin through an open window. That night, four people were sleeping in the cabin. Patsy Gibson, Lucinda Body, Gracie Vance, and Orange Washington. Gibson and Body did not work for the Dunham family. They were just visitors who had chosen a very bad night to visit their friends.
2: The Annihilator struck Gibson and Boddy on their heads with a blackjack or something similar, fracturing both of the women's skulls. But for the other two, the killer used an axe, which was later found under the blankets of the bed. Within moments, all four of them were unconscious.
1: He then shoved Gracie out the open window, leaving a trail of blood on the sill. He threw the young woman over a fence and dragged her through a weed-filled vacant lot to a stable owned by a neighbor, W.H. Hotchkiss. Investigators came to believe that Gracie must have revived at this point because there were signs of a fierce struggle.
2: Ooh. Um, that's a lot of bodies in one sitting. Um, The killer finished by beating her head in with a brick. As in two earlier incidents, the victim was wounded above or near both ears and in the temple. She had been raped while she was either dead or dying. She was later found, quote, her head almost beaten into a jelly, end quote. According to a story in the Austin Daily Statesman, Gracie and Orange both died. Patsy Gibson and Lucinda body survived.
1: Public outrage grew and the police force was frequently declared ineffective. And incompetent. The city hired Pinkerton detectives, but they too failed to solve the mystery. In December 1885, City Marshal Grooms Lee was replaced by James E. Lucy, an ex Texas Ranger, and the city police force was expanded in size. New ordinances were enacted by the city council, including a midnight curfew. Late night sales of liquor were curtailed, and vagrants were run out of town.
2: Uh, Remember those vagrancy laws Uh, when I see vagrants run out of town, that leads me to believe that at one point Austin was a sundown town. Do you know what a sundown town is? Yeah, but remind me. It is Welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. A sundown town is a city or town in the United States where if a black person or any black indigenous person of color is caught in said town, after the sun goes down, their life is in danger. You are basically fair game. White people can do whatever they want to you. Kill you, mutilate you, kidnap you, rob you. Um, and you could never be heard from again. And I think Yikes. people think that sundown towns were a thing of the past. We just had the glorious TV show, Lovecraft Country. And there was a really um, epic Uh, sundown town scene Um, but I think there are still sundown towns that exist today
1: yeah Um, yeah
2: so anyway This is how writer Skip Hollinsworth described it in a 2000 article in Texas Monthly. Lucy ordered his troops to, quote, stop strangers and ask them what their business was in town. If the answers were not satisfactory, the strangers were given 24 hours to leave town, spurred on by a $3,000 reward offered by a citizens committee, as well as a $300 reward by the Texas governor, private detectives and police officers from other cities arrived in Austin in droves the city was turning into a police state end quote and according to an article in the new york times from 1885 more than 400 men were arrested in connection in this case and i believe most of them were black am i not am i wrong yeah
1: okay yeah i I think so yeah susan hancock a white woman described by one reporter as quote One of the most refined ladies in Austin, unquote, married Moses Hancock in about 1868. They had two daughters, Lena and Ida. On Christmas Eve, 1885, Lena and Ida Hancock had gone to a Christmas party and were not at home. Susan Hancock was asleep in her daughter's bed when an intruder struck her in the head, knocking her unconscious before carrying her into the backyard. Moses Hancock woke up when he heard a noise and was Able to scare the intruder off.
2: Remember Christmas parties? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so
1: sad. Yeah, no
2: free food, no snacks. Next year. <laughs> Next year. The um the body of Susan Hancock was discovered by her husband in their backyard, almost exactly where the Four Seasons Hotel stands today. Her head had been split open by an axe. Her left ear was cut through. She had a wound above her left eye. Her cheekbone was cut and her skull was fractured in two places. The Annihilator had again used a long, sharp instrument to stab her in the ear with such force that the weapon sank two inches into her brain. Yikes. Susan survived for three days, but died on December 28th, 1885.
1: About an hour after after the attack on Susan, Eula Phillips was found dead in the wealthiest neighborhood in the city, near where the Austin Public Library stands today. Eula Phillips was born Eula Burdett on April twenty second, 1868. She married at the age of 14, wow. shortly after the death of her mother, to James Phillips, who was 21 at the time.
2: Wow, okay. Uh, the Phillips family was a very wealthy family from Austin. A couple married in 1883, and their son, Thomas was born shortly after. The couple lived with James's parents on Hickory Street, now 8th Street, just west of downtown.
1: According to a grandniece, Dorothy Larson, the marriage was one of necessity. She said in those days, quote, if you got a girl pregnant, you married her, unquote. On the surface, Eula appeared to have married well. But Jimmy Phillips was unfortunately an alcoholic with no job who was physically and emotionally abusive.
2: Mm. By the last few months of 1885, Eula and James' marriage was unraveling. Eula started having an affair with 27-year-old John Dickinson. Dickinson was single, attractive, wealthy, and well-connected. And he held the prominent position of Secretary of the Capital Commission, the agency overseeing the construction of the state capitol building, then in progress.
1: In November of 1885, Eula left her husband, taking her infant son with her. She then spent a week at the residence of Fanny Whipple, a black woman, where she met Dickinson in the evenings. Evidently, Eula did not plan on returning to James because she had Mrs. Whipple fetch her belongings from the Phillips home.
2: What, she's like 15 by now? Yeah. <laughs> something like that <laughs> wow. oh my goodness different times uh, Only Eula only stayed at Miss Whipple's a week and moved into the home of May Tobin where she spent the following week Again, seeing Dickinson on several occasions, she then left Mrs. Tobin's
1: and went to stay
2: with relatives in Elgin.
1: Both Fanny Whipple and May Tobin operated what were called assignation houses, which were private residences in which the owners rented rooms for romantic encounters and provided a certain amount of discretion to their customers. Some of the people who rented the rooms were sex workers. Others were lovers looking for a place to spend time together in private.
2: Mm. May Tobin also did what she called, quote, matchmaking, end quote. If a man was looking for a female company, she'd find someone for him, but she did not employ any sex workers she just made her rooms available to them and introduced people if that's what they were looking for
1: while eula was gone and at the urging of his mother to straighten up james phillips stopped drinking and secured a carpentry job at the beginning of december accompanied by his older sister dorothy creary james traveled to elgin and convinced eula to come back to austin eula and thomas then returned to the phillips home
2: On the night of Christmas Eve, after the Phillips household was asleep, Eula slipped out of the house and, accompanied by someone unknown, arrived at May Tobin's, where she had previously spent time with John Dickinson. Eula asked Tobin for a room, but none were available and Eula left. May did not know who accompanied Eula. They stayed out of view, but she assumed it was a man that Eula wanted to spend time with.
1: According to Jimmy, that night, the three of them, he, Eula, and Thomas, were sleeping in the same bed. He was attacked, but he didn't remember what happened. He was found in bed, nearly unconscious, a severe gash in the back of his head. Little Thomas was unharmed, but Eula was dragged outside where she'd been raped and murdered. Eula was found by following the
2: trail of blood from her bedroom, or the bedroom. Her nude body was in an unlit alley behind the home. Her skull had been bashed in by an axe, and heavy pieces of timber had been placed across her arms as if to keep her. Pinned down
1: during the attack. Blood, blood, blood. Last night's horrible butchery, said the headline in the next day's newspaper, the Austin Daily Statesman. (laughs) They were so dramatic. I know.
2: I know. See see what happens when we don't have the internet? You have to do it right in bold. Just start screaming blood. Yeah.
1: (laughs) During a Christmas Day meeting, more than 500 city and business leaders, lawyers, doctors, and clergymen met to devise a plan to stop the killings.
2: The city was on the verge of chaos. Many of the same Black suspects from a year earlier rounded up once again, along with a mentally ill Mexican-American man and two suspicious-looking white brothers found with blood on their clothes in a town north of Austin.
1: The public demanded action and mob violence threatened. All of the efforts, to stop the crimes had failed and the city waited for the next murder to occur. But after December there were no further mysterious murders. Just as suddenly as the attacks began, they just stopped. That's wild. Uh, I know. Yeah.
2: Now we're going to get into the trial uh, or trials. Uh, In in early December 1885, District Attorney James H. Robertson, the mayor's brother, decided to try Walter Spence, the boyfriend of Molly Smith, the first victim for murder. But after a two-day trial, Spence was acquitted. Which is amazing because he was a black man. Whoa! Oh, that's right uh yeah <laughs> that is amazing look at justice yeah. i thought th- i'm I'm, <laughs> I'm like shocked but that yeah, me too.
1: When I read that, I was like, whoa. Whoa, well, yeah. yeah. like the whole
2: Matrix, like, whoa. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jimmy Phillips was tried for the murder of his wife, Eula Phillips. His trial has been called the 19th century equivalent of the O.J. Simpson case. Reporters came in from all over the country, from Chicago, St. Louis, and New York, to cover the trial.
2: Oh, that's interesting. Uh, the DA alleged that Eula had been, at best, having multiple sexual Affairs behind Jimmy's back and at worst, doing actual sex work. Eula's friendship with Fanny Whipple, the black woman who owned the assignation house, was brought up at trial and the fact that she had been to the home of May Tobin earlier in the evening on Christmas Eve, the night she was killed.
1: Jimmy was portrayed by the prosecution as a violently jealous husband, motivated to murder by Eula's infidelity. They did not connect Eula's murder with the murder of Susan Hancock, which had occurred only an hour before hers and in pretty much the same way. Eula's sex life was
2: bared for all to see, and she was basically victim blamed. Uh, At the trial, Jimmy was quoted as having said that if he ever found out that Eula was cheating on him, he would kill her and then himself.
1: During the trial, a piece of evidence was brought out, which was a sought-out plank from the veranda of the house with a bloody footprint on it. Jimmy was made to put his foot in a pan of ink and then stand on a board. The footprint he made in ink was smaller than the bloody footprint.
2: Um, Also, this happened so long ago, but the whole victim-blaming thing um, is a tale as old as time.
1: Yeah, it really is, yeah.
2: Other footprints had been found which had something unusual about the toes. A witness testified about George McCudgeon, one of Eula's alleged lovers. He was asked if George had anything peculiar about his feet but the witness said that he never noticed anything unusual about George's feet. The jury voted to convict Phillips, but he was later acquitted on appeal.
1: Charges were also made against Moses Hancock, the husband of Susan Hancock. In court testimony, witnesses stated that Moses was a drunk and an abusive husband who had made threats against his wife.
2: Susan Hancock's sister, Martha, said that Moses never mistreated Susan except cursing at her when he was drunk, but that Susan was afraid of any drunk man. 16-year-old Lena Hancock defended her father, testifying that Papa always treated Mama kindly and never whipped us girls in our lives.
1: Susan Hancock had thought about leaving her husband and at one point had written a letter detailing her reason for leaving, which was basically that he was a drunk and she couldn't take it anymore. Susan never went through with her plans to leave Moses, but she kept the letter hidden away. It was found among her belongings after her death and was used as evidence in court.
2: After the death of his wife, Moses Hancock was his own worst enemy. He was drinking heavily. He was threatening and abusive to his in-laws and others, he made up strange stories and accusations related to the murder and talked about leaving the country. But in spite of himself, he was ultimately exonerated of Susan's murder
1: in 1887. Both men were released from custody and never tried again. For months, there was still talk about various suspects, both black and white, but the crimes remained unsolved.
2: Well, there are many theories on this case, and we are going to share some of them with you. Uh, Some people believe that the Austin Killer and Jack the Ripper were the same person. I like this theory. Uh, (laughs) I don't know if I believe it. On November 19th, 1888, the Statesman reported that a Malay cook running on ocean vessels, was a suspect in the Jack the Ripper murders. The newspaper reported that a Malay cook had been employed at a small hotel called Pearl House in Austin in 1885.
1: The cook was named Maurice, Alaska or Lasker. Uh, I, I think uh, in Austin, he was known as Maurice. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there was a Malay cook in London, that named Alaska or Lascar, they're not sure, and they think it was the same person. Oh. Anyway, known as Maurice in Austin, he told acquaintances that he planned to travel by ship to London and left town in January of 1886, several weeks after the servant girl murders ended.
2: A strong presumption that the Malay was the murderer of the Austin women was created by the fact that all of them except. Two or three resided in the immediate neighborhood of the Pearl House, uh, according to the Statesman
1: uh, in November 1888. An author named Shirley Harrison, who wrote a book called Jack the Ripper, The American Connection, also believes that the Annihilator and the Ripper are the same person, though she thinks the perpetrator was not the cook but was a Liverpool cotton merchant named James Maybrick.
2: Mm. According to her Maybrick's own purported journals, which include confessions of killing prostitutes as well as a page signed by quote Jack the Ripper, Maybrick was in Austin on the dates the annihilator murders occurred. Maybrick died likely of arsenic and uh strychny? strychnine, oh, stricknine, strychnine. Strychnine. Yeah. I-, I thought that was a rapper's name. Strick never seen it spelled <laughs> that way. Arsenic and strychnine poisoning possibly administered by his wife in May of
1: 1889 after both series of murders ended. But unlike Jack the Ripper, who only attacked lone white sex workers in a poor district of London, the Austin killer murdered in different parts of the city, and the women were of different classes and races. He attacked them in their homes, sometimes attacking other people who were present. He wielded an axe dragged them outside, and sometimes punctured their skulls with a rod-like metal object. As far as I know, he did not keep trophies. Jack the Ripper cut his victims apart with a knife, removing organs, which he sometimes kept as trophies. So in my opinion, these MOs and signatures are completely different. Look, you're the OG. I'm just going to go with you. what you say.
2: <laughs> Uh, According to Mark Safrick, an ex-FBI profiler, one man was responsible for all of the murders in Austin. The murderer stunned the victims in some way and then would usually drag them outside where he would be able to do whatever he wanted in the cover of darkness.
1: He believes that because the first victims and the majority of the victims were black, that the perpetrator was probably also black and that the perpetrator doesn't have a lot of power or control in his life. So he takes that power back by rendering power and control over someone else's life.
2: Saffrick believes that the killer was a younger man, a strong man, probably in his 20s, because he was able to take on the male victims and drag the women outside through windows and over fences.
1: By the time the two affluent white women were murdered on Christmas Eve, the killer already had a lot of murders under his belt and was becoming emboldened. The killings probably ended because the murderer was stopped somehow. Maybe he moved, was incarcerated, or he died.
2: Kim Rossmo, an expert in geographic profiling, claims that serial killers create mathematical patterns with their crimes. That most of the time, killers live within close proximity to their crimes. He pointed out that although many of the crimes took place in residential areas, they were in close proximity to Guy
1: Town, Austin's red light district, which was mixed race. On the night Susan Hancock and Eula Phillips were murdered, if you look at where the homes are located... Between them is May Tobin's house, where Eula had visited earlier that evening. The suggestion is that the killer may have followed her from there. Kim's computer algorithm suggests that the killer lived somewhere around Congress Avenue, possibly in Guy Town.
2: Another theory is that the murderer would take a train into town, commit the. Oh, that's my alarm to get my shit together. Sorry. Uh, the another theory. <laughs> is that the murderer would take a train into town, commit the murders, and then leave because the train station is also in the same area near Guy Town.
1: History detectives on PBS did an episode on this story, and they surmised that the murderer was a 19-year-old black man named Nathan Elgin, who was killed by police in 1886 after dragging a woman from a saloon to a nearby house and attacking her. Locals called the police after they heard continuous screams from the house, and Elgin was shot while resisting arrest, and he was missing a little toe from one of his feet.
2: (gasps) whoa. Did not see that
1: episode.
2: Uh, Well, you know what? That's all, folk. I'm going to just close my computer now. (laughs) The case is solved. Well, I guess, you know what? Let's just get into our takeaways and what we think might have made this individual pop off.
1: What do you got, Beth? Um, Well, I just wanted to say that I find it strange that this... Story never got as much coverage as the Jack the Ripper murders, since the actual murders were pretty horrific. Oh, yeah. I mean, with the cutting them up with an axe and then uh, sticking the metal rod in their heads and through their ears it, it, uh-huh. uh, awful. Yeah. yeah, and these women were not sex workers attacked on the street, but they were attacked in their actual bedrooms, sometimes with their men or children lying beside them. So I would think that would. Uh, garner more attention but uh I-, I don't know this killer also had more victims than jack the <gasps> ripper did so.
2: santa maria are you serious
1: yeah yeah i have so- no
2: idea Wow.
1: Yeah. So I I don't know why it didn't get that much attention. Uh, of course, the news is racist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but there were there were white m- women killed, so you would think there would have been uh, more attention paid to it. So I don't I don't know exactly why, but um, maybe because Jack the Ripper wrote letters to the newspapers. Okay. So it was known that it was one man doing the crimes. Okay. Um, whereas you know people thought that it was like gay of black people doing these crimes Mm -hmm. i don't know Mm -hmm. yeah
2: yeah you're right that may be the only difference i was also going to say um no offense to the media but it might have also been challenging to cover a crime involving mixed race with so many theories you know through throughout time like how how i'm sorry how it, it's in my head it would be difficult to preserve the enthusiasm and um pursuit of a case like that like it would eh, it's just too much
1: you know what i mean yeah too many <laughs> yeah that's true yeah yeah you got a point there um it's also weird to me that people didn't think that it was the work of one man but of gangs Um, But but of course, I'm looking at it with modern eyes and everything that we know today about serial killers. Um, From what I've read, serial killers are not a new phenomenon, Mm -hmm. but they just weren't understood back then.
2: Yeah, I got to tell you, Beth, I'm going in my um, into my memory banks and I'm recalling conversation i had with you before we ever started this show and uh-huh. i i was like oh i just just i don't know what it was but we were to, maybe we're talking about vampires or well were- werewolves and you were like you know it, it was probably a serial killer not a werewolf yeah. or a vampire like people yeah. just didn't have the language <laughs> and i was like oh, what
1: yeah <laughs> so right, I, I, it's not a new phenomenon I, but right look at our understanding yeah i think that's that uh, you know there were attacks on people and and they just didn't they couldn't fathom that another human being would do something like this. So right. it was werewolves yeah. or, or some kind of a demon yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And that
2: came up even in this case. And isn't that why true crime is so fascinating? Like how c- in the world would another yeah. human being do this to somebody <laughs> <Do> this.
1: else? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the whole, um, punching their heads with a uh, metal rod of some type oh, is yeah. really, really weird. Like he, that was, was like i think that was something that he needed to do to get off
2: like poke them in the ear that poke the ear thing
1: shoves shove a piece of metal into their brain yeah which is really weird it is
2: very very much so and um i don't know why i can't get that image out of my head but i thank you for putting it there (laughs) and i'm being 100 percent serious uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so um yeah this was a really interesting case I'm really glad we got to cover it I don't yeah. know if the guy was white or black um right. it was interesting I did notice that most of the victims were of the servant servant class and and yeah. you know black women of, and the most vulnerable population but the least valued and unfortunately yeah. there was no fruit loops back then y'all so the victim <laughs> got little news coverage uh but even in the immediate aftermath of some of the attacks uh the victims got what I perceive to be very little compassion. For example, there was a woman who was killed in the vicinity of her children, and um, the employer sent in his niece, and she was like horrified by the bloody scene and just ran away and left yeah, the kids there. Yeah. Or um, I think um, one of the partners was attacked of one of the women of the black women and knocked on the on the employer's door and was like, "We've been attacked," and he was like, "I'll I'll see you in the morning" or something like like <laughs> they, yeah. There was not yeah. I mean these were these were human beings living amongst the white people and and I yeah
1: I think that was actually uh, Molly Smith. Okay. Uh we didn't get into that whole story but it was pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I could have added that in, but yeah, uh, hey, they just stabbed me in the head. Okay, well I'll see you in the morning. Like <laughs> we'll all we'll check that out in the morning. Go yeah. on back to bed. What <laughs> the hell?
2: Um, and it just it just seemed really um like ah uh, gross. Um, but evolution comes to my mind with this case on so many levels, right? The evolution of our society, right? S- slavery being a, a recent memory for everybody alive at the time of this story. Um evolution of serial killing and the investigation of the same, um, the evolution of the victims going from black servant girls to white women um, or across classes um, and. You know what has not evolved, though? The hardcore desire to keep white women safe. And it didn't yeah. seem like it until that was an element of the story that law enforcement like really got their butts in gear. Um, it seriously. Yeah. 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 Which is uh, unfortunate. Um, oh, uh, one more thing. Sorry. Rape. A crime of power. Nothing to do with sex. So I, I was under the impression that it could have been a white guy. Because here's why, this is this is a theory I needed to share. Sorry, this episode is oh, too so okay. long. I feel like such an asshole. But so, rape is a crime of power, and I think that it could have been a white dude, despite this toe in this toe thing. But um, people, slavery was you know what twenty years before this. And a right. white population had a really, really hard time, especially in Texas, as we talked about in the setting part, really hard time adjusting to the fact that black people were no longer enslaved and necessarily below them. And it pissed a lot of white people off and was really, really hard for them to get used to. Hence the KKK. Um, right. And somebody uh, I, I just in my head pictured a white guy so angry at the new system and the new way society looks, and these black people getting jobs and like walking around wherever they wanted—what the hell? And and seeking revenge on the new system and the most and and attacking um, uh, women. Like, what's more um, vile than like raping a woman, right? Um, yeah. And so that that was my theory. And now I'll shut up <laughs> and move on. <laughs>
0: And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.
2: We're going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true
1: crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic
2: tips. Um, so I was just generically thinking preventing home invasions and what to do if you find yourself in an unfortunate situation such as a home invasion um we've covered um these two uh scenarios in the past you can refer to past episodes and we'll put resources in the description of our our, on our website but the best defense is a good offense i don't know if i'm saying that uh you know cliche right but basically protect your home in advance and make a plan in the event of a break-in that's the short answer um there's no surefire way to prevent somebody from breaking into your home or, um, you know, there's no 100% guarantee for, um, you know, avoiding, um, these things, but some things you can do in advance, make sure your house is well lit from the outside. Um, don't let the place look like nobody lives there. Take it easy on the flexing y'all. Even if you've got the bag and you've got, you know, uh, all these valuables, big screen TVs right in front of the, you know, in front of the windows and your grand pianos, like, you know, on the lawn, like hide that stuff. Okay. Things might be, (laughs) we don't want to attract the thieves. Um, keep keys. Uh, don't keep them like under the mat. Everybody knows that's there. Make entry difficult, secure everything, secure the shit out of thing, eliminate blind spots, like on, uh, around your, you know, where you live, your, your home or apartment or whatever, you know, if there's, um, tall, um, trees and boxes and things that people can hide behind that is not safe because then they can hide behind something and kill you. Also security (laughs) security systems are a good idea if you can afford it but you can also get fake signs. We've talked about that. If an intruder is in your home stay calm. Very hard to do. Um, If you can escape do so. If you can't hide and call for help or the police. And in some jurisdictions 911 has a text feature. Um so look into that ahead of time.
1: Um oh, and good idea. uh
2: I was go- I heard on another podcast about this she birdie thing it's a personal alarm they're not a sponsor by the way it's a personal alarm um but you can get them for pretty cheap between like 5 and 30 dollars online and it's just a button that you push and it goes woo woo um and they're really cute like um designs and colors and stuff like that but a personal alarm cool. kind of like a whistle so Yeah. Now we are going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content uh, about people of color, any marginalized uh, groups or other groups um, or by them or about them or any true crime goodies. So I just wanted to shout out real fast. Do No Harm podcast. It's based on um, an NBC News reporting uh, into a system that is designed to protect children, but sometimes just ends up tearing families apart. And it's about CPS. It's very deeply flawed. And it explores, uh, the podcast series is about six or seven episodes. It explores race and gets into the fact that Black children are like way more likely to encounter CPS uh, in the system. And uh, the whole system itself is not good. It's also a heart-wrenching podcast because you hear audio of
1: children being ripped away from their Mm. parents. I'm laughing because I don't want to cry, but it's really good. What do you got? Uh, well, I'm I'm just going to recommend an app. <laughs> oh, fun. Yeah, it's just a fun app. It's called ReFace. Okay. And uh, they take photos, GIFs, and short videos. You submit your picture, and they put your face on the face of the person in the uh, picture or video. <laughs> oh does sound fun yeah it's just something that's been distracting me uh lately and I kind of um sit there and I'm like oh, I'll just do one or two of these and so I put <laughs> my face like Oprah I made myself Oprah um, <laughs> I made myself Lizzo <laughs> what? like
2: working yeah. and stuff oh my god yeah oh, oh I
1: it <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's fun just wanted to shout that out because I don't have anything else <laughs> oh my god
2: that sounds so lovely yeah I don't have anything else either but um I do want to say have the happiest um Christmas Hanukkah yeah, Merry Kwanza, Christmas, New Year's happy, whenever happy. you're listening to this just take All care of stuff. yourself and each other at the end of 2020 yeah 2020
1: um, is gonna be over soon yeah. guys.
2: and stay safe but brace yourselves for 2021 2021
1: <laughs> Twenty one, yeah. Um,
2: that's, Take a deep breath. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and get ready. Yeah,
2: yeah. Let's let's let's. Uh, yeah, we'll get through this. <laughs> Well, we're going to make it. Uh, But in the meantime, where can the people find us, Beth?
1: Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod, and links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash app. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash app, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website.
2: That's right. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.